Hello and welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We bring you interviews from people who have conquered the trickiest of health challenges using the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition philosophy and similar healing modalities. You're going to hear from experts who have been through the ringer with their health issues and yet managed to come out on the other side. If you're interested in natural healing and or functional medicine, congrats, you are in the right place. You can always visit us at functionaldiagnosticnutrition.com, but for now, here is today's episode. All right. Hello, my friends. I am back with my friend and fellow FDN practitioner, Becca Kyle. We are also both type eights on the Enneagram, if anyone cares at all. And I find a lot of people in our our community of health actually do care about the personality typing stuff and things like that. So it explains why you guys liked the other episode. It was uh, a volcano mixing with another volcano, just bam, high energy, um, definitely made to speak. Um, today, I appreciate no judgment. Um, I attempted to do my thing after coming out of the sauna. I thought I could pull off an episode after that, and my hair said otherwise. Um, I never really thought I'd say that on a podcast, but it needs to be addressed. The good news is we're not here to talk about my hair. We are here to talk about my poop, though. It's going to be even more interesting. And what we're going to be doing with with my poop is analyzing live lab results. You guys responded so positively to the episode we did with Ryan Monahan, where it was called How to actually analyze thyroid markers and what's funny is and and becca obviously knows this as an fdn we have access to utilize blood work with our Mm -hmm. clients you could take our advanced course on that Uh, but the truth of the matter is we don't actually dive into blood work really in any extent in the main course Mm -hmm. and it's mostly under the premise that when most people come to us their labs kind of look normal or it's not the biggest Mm -hmm. clue at the very least. The the lab work is almost like, okay, cool. We can give you a diagnosis with that if we were a doctor, but we're not a doctor. So we need to look at other things and to actually be able to help you at that core level. So I'm figuring, I'm like, wow, if they liked that with the blood work that much for the thyroid markers, we really need to do this with the core labs we teach at FDN. So today we're going to be talking about the GI map. It is something that, as I suggested already, is a stool test. Um, We'll talk about the technology behind it. I'm really here to talk to Becca because she likes utilizing this test. It is one of the core labs we teach at FDN. We'll be going through all of these, um, not in order unnecessarily. And what I mean by that is it's not going to be one episode after the other, but over the next couple of months, I will be touching on all of them and it's fun. So if you are listening to this right now, you can catch us on YouTube. Just go to Functional Diagnostic Nutrition's YouTube page and you can watch. But we make these episodes with the audio listener in mind because our audience is way bigger on there. So we will talk about this in such a way today that you do not need to see it, but some people are visual learners. Um, So with that said, I am going to share my screen and we're going to bring this up for you here, Becca. Um, of course, guys, I think I mentioned this, but if you want to hear Becca's story, I'll have that link in the show notes or the YouTube description. Uh, today, we're here to hear her expertise about this test. Um, I love this so test so first much. And foremost, yes, and you can see everything just fine? Yep, I can. Okay, awesome. All right, so this is from 2018. I'm doing a lot better now. Don't you guys worry. But um, the GI map was one of the things that when I went through FDN, I actually did not end up running this. And at the time, they were not including this specific lab in the FDN course. Now, when you go through the course, included in your tuition, FDN will pay for it up front for you. Even if you're on a payment plan, you will have access to this test and a few others. So it's pretty cool. Um, not that we have to like go crazy with it, but just to give people some context that might be completely unfamiliar with this, Becca, how does this lab work? Like what kind of technology is it using to analyze one stool? So what I love about the the GI map versus uh, the original microscopy test that we were trained on is that I feel like it's a lot more um, accurate as far as not it's not just a positive or a negative. Um, It's a DNA PCR test. So it's looking for instead of someone like looking for organisms under a microscope, they're looking for the DNA signature of the organism. So they'll be able to tell you. Um, Is it below detectable limits um, or is it high or is it low versus just present or not present? Because something is super high, to me, that's going to warrant a little bit of a different um, action step or strategy than if something's moderate or kind of borderline, for example. So I really love that it gives you the ability to um, just have a a deeper understanding of like how many organisms you've got going on in your body. Um, It's got some amazing digestive markers. In fact, I feel like most of the time that the digestive markers 
situationally maybe my favorite markers on this lab. Um, and it gives you a beautiful look at what's going on in your microbiome. Um, as I think most of us feel in FDN, you know, if you don't have good quality gut health, you don't have health. And so what other thing I love about this lab is it, uh, it really talks to all the other labs, you know, what shows up on a Dutch hormone test, what shows up on a food sensitivity test, what shows up on even an organic acids or HTMA test. Um, the, the data you get really is so synergistic with everything else, every other piece of data that you can come across. Awesome. And what we will, um, what's worth mentioning is that very recently they changed the way this looks. Um, fundamentally, the test is almost identical. Mm -hmm. I know that they yeah. mess with some markers, but for the sake of today's learning experience, uh, there is no reason that my test doesn't work. And of course, it's just easier to use my own because I can absolutely share that without any problem. Um, so let's go over the sections here. Um, the first okay. one, it just has these pathogens. Um, obviously, anyone watching this can see that it has every single thing in here below the detectable level. Uh, but but humor me, let's say something comes back for a client in the bacterial, parasitic, mm -hmm. or viral pathogen section. Um, how are you, big picture approach, how are you looking at these things and addressing them? Well, I feel like the, the ones that show up on the first page are um, what I would call like pretty hardcore. Um, if something shows up on this page, we want to... Um, really pay attention to it and address it in significant ways because, uh, you know, something like Giardia, for example, can really cascade into so many health issues. Um, it can even impede your body's ability to absorb um, B12, for example. Um, there's so many things on, on this first page that <clears throat> we would not want to just be like, eh, it's fine. No, no, we address it and we address it quickly um, because it can, like we said, just um, be implicated in so many of your chronic symptoms, but also um, really just the underlying um, large amounts of inflammation and um, toxic burden even. Sure. Okay, cool. So I happen to pass the test on this one um, and we are good on this page. And I will be honest, a lot of the clients that I've worked with throughout the years have actually historically come up pretty clean on this section. Yeah. That's not always the case. And we train you what to do if you go through the course, uh, if someone comes up on this stuff. But when I've even seen it, the good news is a lot of the things were actually correlated with what would have been like food poisoning. And mm -hmm. it was a transient thing and it passes through them. Um, but yes, like Becca mentioned, I mean, the Giardia, uh, certain of the parasites, especially not so great. And um, depending on what shows up in the bacterial pathogen section uh, could be not so friendly. So yeah. I'll jump right down to the next section. And again, for those on audio, what we're looking at now is a section known as H. pylori. Um, we see H. pylori itself as the result. And then there's a bunch of virulence factors. So let's say, Becca, I haven't, maybe I'm a client of yours, right? I haven't mm -hmm. heard of H. pylori at all. And I get these results back. How would you uh, break this down for those people? Yeah. So, you know, H. pylori is really common. I had it, um, I would say probably 80% of my clients end up having it. It's a bacteria. Um, it, it can be, have a causative role in like ulcers and gastritis and some more severe um, kind of diagnosis. However, in my opinion, you know, we're looking on a deeper level. So we're looking at the fact that it can um, lower your uh, stomach acid, which should be your first line of defense against anything else ingested, like you come across a bacteria or pathogen. So basically it's like if you have H. pylori, it can have the potential to kind of be in your, your stomach and your gut area like you leave for vacation and you leave all the doors and windows open in your house and say, hey, come on, let's, let's go invade, right? Um, I kind of, I always say it's like the mob boss of the gut. Um, you know, it it's, it's can either, if you don't have it, then, you know, it, it's, it's, it's always, to me, good news. If you do have it, even on like you see here on yours, and then that yours is not what we would consider be high. Um, the thing about H. pylori, though, it's often uh, hangs out in the more upper regions of the gut and the stomach area. And so by the time it gets down into a stool sample, it might actually be higher um, in the, the upper regions of the GI tract. And so I always look at H. pylori as a huge healing opportunity. Um, because of its ability to lower stomach acid, to allow um, uh, other bacteria and pathogens into the gut. And then it can potentially, with that lowered stomach acid, um, reduce your body's ability to even absorb protein. It can 
Um, there's some correlation with low elastase one, which we'll look at on that last page. Um, <clears throat> and it can just be implicated in a lot of chronic issues, especially for, to me, um, I have a lot of clients that shows up, um, high probably almost always shows up when someone has anxiety, insomnia, um, things like, like the, the neurological issues, because it can um, impact your body's ability to make these amino acid-based uh, neurotransmitters. So they feel good hormones and make you feel happy and balanced and all that stuff. H. pylori can, you know, if you're going back root, root cause and kind of backtracking, um, it can um, have a causative role um, in, in an imbalanced mood even. And so um, I look at H. pylori as a massive healing opportunity. So even though it's not high on this lab, I would still um, address it. It's very common that it's spread in families or with a romantic partner because it's spread uh, very commonly via saliva. It also hangs out in your oral cavity. So, you know, if you've got someone that you're um, loving on or you're sharing a toothbrush spot or you're sharing a straw or spoon, I always recommend, you know, that, um, that the whole family or whoever um, is involved there also address it um, for themselves. And it's a tough thing because obviously H. pylori, well, I shouldn't say obviously, for those that don't know, once it is there, it, it's a little tricky. And mm -hmm. many people, thankfully, are asymptomatic. Um, it's estimated that about 50% of people in Africa yep. actually have H. pylori. And then you'll see estimations. This is what's really fascinating to me. The estimations are always around 20 to 30%, at least by Western medicine, that that's how many people have this in the United States of America. And I'm not... I'm not even saying that that's so far off. Let's say it's almost completely wrong and it's 50% of Americans. What you mentioned before was brilliant about the idea that 80% of your clients show up with H. pylori because mm -hmm. I have found the same thing over the last five and a half years. I would even estimate, I mean, literally the actual number for me is probably 90%. Okay. And then of course we are talking about stool testing, which is an imperfect measurement. Yeah. So there are chances that if you and I run enough of these, we are going to miss something like H. pylori and it's going to come back up as a false uh, negative, which is fascinating. So there's only two things that can be happening here. Either this is way more prevalent than we think, which I mm -hmm. think is possible, but that still does not account for the numbers that we see. So then the other side is that this is, even though correlation isn't causation, it's something that seems to be par for the course uh, when someone is ill. Um, and mm -hmm. you can simply argue that, well, when people are super stressed out, which most people are if they're chronically ill, that this gives uh, gives a great ground for something like H. pylori to hop on in. Yeah. And I mean, if a fraction of the population has it, eventually you are going to be exposed to it in that stressful state and it can come and make its home. So, I mean, you could spend all day trying to theorize why this comes in, but yeah. it's not something to mess with, especially, I don't know if we ever got to talk about the virulence factors not that yet. can be associated with a higher uh, risk factor mm -hmm. for like um, gastric cancer and stuff yeah. like that. So you know, I was symptomatic to be clear because I, I did not, Becca wouldn't have known these things. So I should have mentioned this. We always correlate with the symptoms that the person um, is dealing with. And thankfully by 2018, I was doing a lot better, but I was coming off of having pretty severe cystic acne. I definitely had sleep issues when I was younger, a panic disorder, major depressive disorder, GERD. I was diagnosed with that at 15, which is oh gastroesophageal. Uh, I can't tell you how many of my those. clients have reflux and are on reflux meds and they come to me and they're like, Becca, I don't want to be on these meds. And I would say 98% of the time H. pylori shows up, get rid of the H. pylori or greatly reduce it and they can get off their meds. It's their own, you know, desire to do so. Cause I, you know, as an FDM, we don't tell anyone, suggest to anyone yes. that they get off meds, but if it's there's something that they want to do almost every single time they can, because H. pylori also has a causative role in things like reflux or GERD or um, um, heartburn, things like that. So, so when you, when you got, um, went through your protocol, how quickly did your symptoms, um, or how quickly did your symptoms improve? Well, it's interesting that you said that because one of the things that I did was I utilized Matula tea. And I always laugh about Matula tea because it comes from uh, South Africa. But the website that they use is very outdated and the tea is extraordinarily expensive for yes. uh, comparing to most teas. So it's kind of – it's almost funny for people because they're like, really? This is what you're sending me to do? Like this is what I need to go buy? Uh, but it's one of the more – 
effective things and has a high level of efficacy in our world, at least. And so I used that and I would say within a month and a half, now I'm including the month that I did the Matula tea. I, I started to notice the skin get better um, and things just start to feel better. And what's really interesting, it's a point I want to go to is something you mentioned. You talked about, you noticed how people might be able uh, voluntarily, of course, to get off these medications if H. pylori is gone or greatly reduced. And I have noticed a, a ton of validity to the latter. So in your experience, you have found that if people can get this uh, lower than maybe what they came to with originally, mm -hmm. they can still see that symptom relief. Is that correct? Yes, most definitely. And, you know, sometimes depending on the level that you have, it might take um, more than one round of some um, herbal protocol to be able to maybe have it show up below detectable levels, you know, on a retest, um, you know, but the goal is to, to just bring your levels down. Um, and then of course, you know, with the special with the, we look at the next section, it, it's about balance. So if you've got H pylori and super low levels of your normal good guys, you're going to be super imbalanced. You know, we bring down the level of H pylori, bring up the levels of your low good guys. And again, you're going to have, um, typically, uh, fewer symptoms and, um, and yeah, with this, this virulence factor, you know, it, it basically has the potential to increase, um, disease in the body. And so it just based, it's like, um, you know, doubling it up or tripling it up. Now your specific one here, this VIRB, um, one, um, is unless you also have the one that the CAGA, it's typically, um, less likely to change the clinical outcome of an H. pylori infection. So, um, but yeah, the virulence factors can, can make your, um, symptom presentation much worse and has the potential to increase the, the disease potential of, of the bacteria. I did not even know that myself. So thank you. That makes me feel good. Yeah, um, I will say too, you know, this is not, everyone needs to figure out what's right for them. And if you go through the FDN course, I mean, we definitely, if the client wants to, we, we would aim that it be eliminated. That would be great. Um, I have found that if I am addressing the other things in my life correctly, this does mm -hmm. not seem to matter. But it is my belief, even without um, a, a current retest, uh, that I probably still have H. pylori. There's two reasons I believe that. One, in the last four years, I'm, I've I don't know why I would have said it on this podcast. I'm not someone that personally believes in going out and just hooking up with random people. And with hair like this, you know, I can only swing them every few years anyway. Um, no, I'm kidding. But I, I've dated two women since 2018. And I would assume, you know, that <laughs> based on what we've seen, um, H. pylori was probably present in at least one of these women. And so, okay, I know I'm getting exposed again. And what I saw, Becca, which is really interesting, is like, this was just last year, because I mm -hmm. really feel great nowadays, which is great. And I mean, yeah. But last year when I was pushing the schedule a little bit and I was accepting more speaking stuff than I should have, I started to get symptoms when mm -hmm. I would eat ginger or mm -hmm. certain other foods. And I didn't, I never got a diagnosis. This is someone I made a uh, choice on my own because I felt that I knew what was happening. Um, it appeared to me that I probably had a low level ulcer because there were certain things, very mm -hmm. specific ones that were triggering yeah. pain. Um, the pain would happen at certain times. It was relieved in certain ways. And I was like, whoa, wow, man, I'm pushing a little too hard. Now, I never went through some maturity protocol. I didn't do all this crazy stuff, but I did do the lifestyle things that I know I should have been doing anyway. Mm -hmm. I stopped pushing like a maniac and I went through some basic protocols. So if I tested right now, I would almost bet money that H. pylori is present in my body and yet I'm asymptomatic again. I feel good. And so it's not um, an idea. I'm not pushing an idea that we shouldn't try to get rid of it. I mean, that's great. It doesn't seem to be particularly helpful, but it's also one of those things that it is such a nuisance and so prevalent. You can learn to work with it more or less mm -hmm. by addressing the lifestyle yeah. stuff and doing other things. Right. But you might be symptomatic again. And I, I do believe I've been symptomatic because of it. Uh, um, again, honestly, I don't think it ever fully left my body. When yeah. We go down to the next session, uh, next section, talking about normal bacterial uh, flora. We see a lot of lows here for mine. Um, so what would your, I mean, especially now knowing what I was dealing with, right? Uh, coming off of mm -hmm. some cystic acne, severe mental health issues, things like that. What would be your interpretation when you see things this low um, for someone oh, well, after all these years? I would say that you have a, a really decent size imbalance in your, in your gut flora. Um, 
I mean, to, to keep it simple with my clients, I tend to say good guys and bad guys. You know, it, it's pretty basic speak, um, I suppose. But these are these are bacterial bacterial flora that you want in your gut, um, and they're so important. They make um, serotonin, feel good hormone. They make melatonin. They make um, vitamins. They um, help keep your um, estrogen balanced. Um, they what you want. Another kind of basic thing I say is that, you know, in this gut, we have this this communication highway between our gut and our brain. Um, it's called the enteric nervous system. And we want the good guys to have the loudest voice versus the bad guys, you know. And so when you have this imbalance of, you know, some present H. pylori, and we'll see what else you got going on here in a little bit, and low good guys, um, who's going to have the loudest voice? You know, it's these opportunistic pathogens that cause... Um, a lot of your symptoms. Um, and so I would say based on this lab that you definitely needed um, to rebalance your um, your normal flora. And this is such a, again, a significant healing opportunity in the body because um, these uh, gut bacteria are so important for so many things. If you don't have, if you simply don't have the amount you need to do all these beneficial processes in the body, you know, that can look like a lot of chronic symptoms. So um, would you say that you, um, what you showed up here with all these low bacteria, um, would you say that correlates with um, how you were feeling at the time? Uh, of course, because, you know, it's one of those things where even if I got a lot of the major symptoms out of the way, uh, it's amazing how sick we can actually be is what mm -hmm. I'm trying to get at. Because I thought, and I guess in a sense, I was doing much better than I had been previously in 2018. But like now it's like, okay, I'm back to how I really wanted to feel like, you know, I can go work out five, six days a week, I'm doing boxing, I'm strength training, I'm still speaking, I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm not saying everyone should like push themselves all the time. But I, I felt like I was missing some of that resilience that I had. So yeah. yes, not only does it correlate with that. But one thing that I omitted today, Becca was the fact that even though I hadn't been on antibiotics in several years at that point, mm -hmm. up until 2018, before the age of 18, I had been on over 20 courses of antibiotics, some of which lasted a month or longer. Wow. Okay. Um, well, that definitely correlates, you know, with what shows up on this, this lab here. And if you, you know, so many of us, if we had to do that growing up or whatever, didn't necessarily take the, the, the steps to repopulate you're, you're good guys, you know, after a round of antibiotics. So then you're just um, cycling kind of this downward spiral of imbalance of low good guys and maybe, um, and when your good guys are low also, it's also kind of like opening up the doors and windows of your house and saying, come rob me. Um, because, you know, your good guys really service and protective measure in the gut too. Um, so I would say definitely, um, I would see a need here for um, some repopulation so that we can feed and reseed, you know, that reseed with good bacteria feed, you know, that would be probiotics and feed them with their little food, which is, would be the prebiotics. Um, I love the, um, all the great, amazing, um, simple, cheap prebiotic foods, you know, you can get out there. I'm not one that typically encourages people to, you know, buy bottled supplement prebiotics. Like, no, just eat the prebiotic food. What do you, what do you typically do? I mean, sometimes it's easier just to pop up a prebiotic you know, supplement, but do you prefer to get your prebiotics through food? Well, first of all, I love that you recommend that for clients. I think that makes this work a lot more attainable for people, right? Because it's mm -hmm. much cheaper to just, I mean, everyone has to eat. So you're going to have mm -hmm. to eat some foods anyway. So to incorporate those makes sense. Um, and yeah, obviously my diet had changed pretty dramatically at that time. I'm also, I am an advocate for sure. Personally, if my clients can afford it, um, I love sending people almost, almost routinely through the total gut restore yep. uh, by microbiome labs. I've seen so much success with that. And mm -hmm. I actually have gone through it multiple times. I okay. will just, you know, I, I always use megaspore, but I'll keep throwing yep. it in. So, um, I mean, yeah, I've, if we could start naturally, that's great. I think for me, and listen, it was not natural at all to take 20 courses of antibiotics. So this is no. the other side of this. Right. I was exactly. doing a lot of the things that I thought were right almost for four years prior to this test. And I still wasn't where I needed to be. So um, I'm sure with certain people, especially if antibiotics hadn't been in the mix as much. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you kind of destroyed it naturally in, in a sense. So maybe you have a better chance of fixing it up. Um, we really don't know what 20 courses of antibiotics does to someone. There's not really science showing what that'll do long term. Um, and so since I got affected unnaturally, I almost try to help yeah. myself in 
I'm, I'm using the word loosely, but in an unnatural way, because obviously there's nothing natural right. necessarily about taking a bottled supplement like you mentioned. Well, and, and there's a time and a place um, by all means. And mm-hmm. especially, you know, let's say maybe you had some low normal, but your your phyla microbiota was fine. Then maybe I might be like, let's do this with food. But your phyla microbiota, both of them are low. And these are these are good bacteria that dominate your entire di- digestive tract, your from your, your mouth to your colon. And so when we see low across the board like this, and even like one is not even there, um, then, yeah, I would say that for someone like you, um, you need a little bit of an edge, a little extra support. Sure. Um, and that, you know, maybe using some of these prebiotic foods, you know, jicama, green banana flour, Jerusalem artichoke could be more of a potentially long-term maintenance situation you know let's let's get these um good bacteria flourishing um and then you can maintain you know with some um with some prebiotic foods and whatnot awesome all right now moving down to this section here um we see we're looking at for those on audio opportunistic bacteria and then the subsections under that are additional dysbiotic overgrowth bacteria and potential autoimmune triggers so um this one is not as lit up as some of the other sections. So how, what's your interpretation on this? So we definitely see some um, bacteria that are there that aren't going to do you any favors. You know, I would consider the bacteria that shows up in this section to be pathogenic. They only cause disease. They're not going to help you um, in any way. Um, definitely not. I mean, I've seen this show up with like 10, 12 in the high range um, and, and you have, um, you know, one in the high and then one, two, three that are uh, present otherwise. Um, but I would say that, again, it's about balance. You know, you don't have a ton on this opportunistic bacteria section, but you did have low good guys. So, again, when we have when we look at the scale here of good guys versus bad, I always kind of think of like an old Western movie, right? Like good guys versus bad guys. Um, again, we want it to be we want it to be balanced. And even though you don't have a ton show up because your good guys are so low. Again, who's got the loudest voice here? Who's got who can do the most damage? Um you know, I, I tend to see um, um, a lot of, you know, this can be caused by constipation. That can be caused by, you know, you get these in your gut because of that low stomach acid. Um, and that Prevotella, too, is really correlated with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So were you experiencing um, uh, joint pain at the time of this lab? Thankfully, I mean, that's one of the things that I've, I've never really had that. No. Okay. Good, good. Um, so again, you know, it's just like, I have some clients who, um, come to me and they're like, I don't have any gut symptoms. My gut's fine. I have a lot of neurological symptoms, you know, and, but this will light up like crazy. Um, and so again, what we have to do is FDNs is correlate it back to the person. Um, so I would address these in, um, you know, the, the, uh, uh, GI map protocol, a little bit of biocidin, you know, um, it's nothing like. That I would be like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. But some of these bacteria can can still create you know symptoms, whether it's you know bloating or IBS or constipation. You know they still have the potential to um, uh, cascade into into symptoms that you're experiencing. Sure. I there's two really interesting things that you're doing here that I hope people that listen to this that might not be FDNs are starting to pick up on. One is the fact that if you are actually looking at this test right now, there are certain things. I mean, there's only one thing here labeled high, but Mm -hmm. there's many things that we don't necessarily want. And so the labs are tools. They are fantastic things. They're great to use, but we need to be the brains behind those tools. So just Mm -hmm. because a lab might consider like even H. pylori, right? It didn't have H. pylori as high because it's a lab. It's basically it off something else we in a perfect world don't want that in someone at all so you could argue that any amount of h pylori is quote unquote high um and then the other thing that you're doing is the clinical correlation and if people really understand this they understand the fundamental difference between a western medicine practitioner and an fdn practitioner there's a few differences don't get me wrong but this is the fundamental one when a western medicine practitioner gets test results back they are looking to diagnose something that is what they're trying to do if your blood sugar 
was XYZ level over a couple times, you could get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. We cannot diagnose or treat anything just as FDNs. If you're a doctor and an FDN, of course, you could do that. Um, but as FDNs, we cannot do that. So what we are doing is clinically correlating. And you guys will notice how Becca did exactly what she's supposed to do. She asked me, well, wait, did you have this like joint pain at the time? In this case, no, I didn't have that. Okay, that doesn't clinically correlate for Ev. Other people, and in fact, most of the time, you will find that you can pretty much guess uh, a lot of the times what their symptomology might look like based on what shows up on the labs. But it's not always there because everyone is an individual and everyone has their own unique thing going on. So just something to note for people that are listening today. Um, we have the fungi and yeast section. Um, thankfully, at this point in time, I, I didn't have candida show up. Of course, it could be a false negative, but I had dot, uh, I fell into, before the world of FDN, a lot of those like cleanses and stuff, oh, yeah. like the candida cleanses. And even if that wasn't a complete protocol for the whole body, I feel like it might have helped with there. But I'm sure you see candida pop up pretty frequently on tests, I'm guessing, right? I do. I do. And it's just, you know, it's so common, too, because we think of candida as a secondary, secondary, you know, organism. It's the little brother, a little sister. You know, when you have something like H. pylori or opportunistic bacteria or parasite or something like that, Candida likes to hang out. You know, it's always running after saying, hey, I want to play too. Um, so, you know, it's it's something that we see, you know, it rarely see Candida on its own with nothing else on the lab, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but it is very common um, to see it hanging out with the, with the other guys. Right. I will skip over uh, that section. We don't need that right now because I wanted to talk about this. That's for sure. Uh, on the parasite section, Ooh. we see something called blastocystis hominis, and it is high. This is something we are well-trained on as FDNs. What is going on with this blasto thing for Ooh, me? What does blasto. this mean for I just, I just like to call it blasto because it just makes me feel good to say blasto. Um, and I shake my fist at it. So blastocystis hominis, it's a, it's a parasite. Uh, it's a protozoa. Um, it typically spreads through fecal contamination of food or water. You know, when I say that to someone, that they, sometimes they're like, but I'm not doing anything gross. I'm like, it doesn't mean you're doing anything gross. Um, you know, maybe you ate at a restaurant, they didn't wash the, the produce properly, or, you know, you just don't ever know what you're going to come in contact with, which is why, as Evan stated before, always addressing that lifestyle and keeping your stress levels down and keeping your body able to deal with this stuff that as we, you know, come into contact with it, um, clinical implications of blasto, you know, it can, it can, um, present with diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, um, irritable bowel syndrome, um, all sorts of things. So with your, um, symptom presentation at the time of this test, were you experiencing, um, any of those, uh, symptoms of it? Interestingly, I I never had like the constipation thing. I would occasionally have some diarrhea. Um, One of the things that I got historically and thankfully it was lessened over time and and not even present anymore. But one of the things that made me run this test actually finally, even though I'd been an FTN for a little bit, was the idea that I got this severe stomach pain. Mm-hmm. Um, that ended up landing me in the hospital and okay. they looked at this as completely benign. But I mean, I was going in there 20, 21 years old and was b- basically told I needed a back-to-back endoscopy and colonoscopy. So this sucked. I was in the hospital for three days, endoscopy one day, colonoscopy the next, or maybe it's reverse order. I don't know. Either right. way, um, I got tubes in places I never wanted tubes and I had it back-to-back. So I would assume that that it's probably part of that picture because again, they couldn't figure it out anything. They just sent me home eventually. And I had to have all these expensive things done on me because of the severe stomach pain I was dealing with. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's some pretty, it's a pretty nasty booger. Um, when I see this show up on a lab, I actually get really excited because I'm like, this is a massive healing opportunity, um, potentially. Uh, and if, and, and part of the issue with blasto is that it can be difficult to eradicate. Um, so, you know, it may not be something that, um, and of course, none of the things we do are quick fixes. So I was about to say, it's not going to be a quick fix, but, um, you know, none of, none of what we do is, is meant to be a quick fix. Um, um, but definitely some, some herbal protocols to just like we have bacterial protocols for H. pylori or, um, the pathogenic bacteria. We also have parasitic protocols as well, um, that allow your body to, um, to deal with these, um, and, um, supporting the immune system, you know, supporting detoxification, all the things we would do, um, 
in order to allow your body to take care of, of these, of these bugs. I always think of those, I mean, I'm a lot older than you, but those old raid commercials like kill bugs dead. <laughs> Maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but the I, I, I vaguely have, <laughs> no, yes, I okay. vaguely have an image of it. <laughs> it's, it's all right. It's all right. Um, but I, I would look at uh, this um, high level of blastocystis hominis as a massive healing opportunity. For you, um, and even if you maybe maybe potentially, let's say you weren't um, um, having some of those clinical symptoms, it can still significantly drive inflammatory processes in your body. And one of the things we do with FDN is we are trying to bring down inflammation. We're trying to to balance out the immune system um, and allow your body to function at an optimal level. So taking care of this blasto, whether you're symptomatic or not, to me. Um, it would be um, very important. And then Blasto also has some clinical implications um, as one of the potential um, uh, triggers for um, Hashimoto's. Um, so when I see someone with thyroid issues and Blasto, we definitely want to um, support them and support their bodies in eradicating um, this little parasite. Interesting. Yeah, Ryan Monahan, that was huge in his story. I mean, but he got rid of Blasto. I mean, it's like his thyroid change. Well, sorry, his thyroid symptoms changed pretty yeah. much overnight, which is awesome. Um, with this said, one of the only other markers that we really hyper focused on was H. pylori. And we had given the audience a, a conclusion, just an opinion, not necessarily a rule, but if you did get this lower and it stuck around, it might not be the worst thing in the world and you could just kind of carry on throughout your life. When you see something like this, though, you're going to want this gone on a retest, ideally, yes, right? Like you I don't want, want this, this gone. necessarily hanging out. No, no. And, and, and with something like Blasto, you know, typically uh, I would um, encourage someone to do about a, you know, a 90 day um, parasite uh, protocol. It may take longer than 90 days. And when someone shows up with Blasto, I let them know that. Um, what the expectation is, it's a long-term project. Um, you know, it's facilitated, it's bringing up your good guys. It's, um, it's eradicating. So again, supporting the detox process to allow your body, support your immune system, um, to allow your body to be able to handle this and, um, allow those herbs to work. Um, but it, it definitely can take longer than 90 days. Like if you had, you know, a different parasite show up that might be a little bit easier to kind of get rid of in that 90 day process. But then again, that's why we, we retest, you know, for certain, um, for these, so we can see what's going on and, um, and what your levels might be after a protocol. And, you know, maybe your body is just super awesome and it dealt with it in 90 days, but maybe not. So definitely don't want this hanging out though. Absolutely yeah. not. Cool. All right, thank you. Next section here is going to be, well, subsection is going to be worms. Um, I honestly, I have never run one test yet where I have seen worms pop up nope. on the GI map. Me neither. Is this something you see? No, okay. never. Got it. All right. Then I think um, for the sake of today, at least just for time, we can kind of skip by it, but we could mention something about it if you'd like. Well, um, you know, I think with worms too, it's, it's they, they tend to be bigger than, say, like a bacteria. So you can have a lot more colonization of, um, bacteria in that stool sample where a worm might kind of not be in the, the part that you scooped up and put in the sample. So I think it's just they're less um, likely to be caught per se um, in that stool sample. But that's just my okay. own opinion on, on the wormy, on the squirmy wormies. Um, but I also too, you know, we're addressing like a parasite or something like that. Oftentimes if you did have a worm, it has the potential to take care of that as well. So Awesome. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. All right, and then our last, uh, well, the last real section here is intestinal health. And so the subsections for those on audio is digestion, uh, GI markers, immune response, and inflammation. Uh, there are a few uh, obvious uh, issues here on mine. So uh, we'll just yeah. break them down one by one. What do what do we get to see for the I digestive markers? Love, as I love these. I love, this is, again, I think I said earlier, one of my favorite sections of the test. So digestive markers, we've got something called a last days one, which is a pancreatic enzyme. Um, that facilitates the digestion of protein. Um, at 649, I would say you're doing good. We don't want to really see it under 500. Um, if it's, uh, you know, below 200, then you potentially really could have some issues um, 
digesting, absorbing your protein, which is important for blood sugar and um, hormones and, you know, muscle growth, all the things. Um, but your Elastase one looks great. Um, it's also very common with maybe more on the higher side of H. pylori to have low Elastase one. Those two tend to correlate mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and your steatocrate was below detectable levels. So steatocrate is a marker for undigested fat in your stool. So, Evan, you were doing fine with this marker. If you had some um, um, uh, positive mark um, numbers on this this marker, that can be, you know, uh, implicated in a lot of things. So, you need you need dietary fat for satiety to keep you fuller. Obviously, you want to be absorbing that. You need it for hormones. Um, dietary fat, and you know, that cholesterol is the precursor for all your hormones. Your brain needs fat. Um, but on your lab, um, you seem to be doing a good job of digesting and absorbing, um, your fats, not going through to your stool sample. So overall, I would say your digestive markers look pretty good here. Awesome. It is worth mentioning for those uh, listening. I personally have used digestive enzymes long-term. Uh, you know, it's something as an FDN, you can kind of decide what you want to do because it reads clear as day about it in the course that there is a potential downside to using digestive enzymes long-term in that they might. Uh, make your own natural ones not as effective as they could be. But to me, it's like with our high stress lifestyle, with everything I've been through with the mm-hmm. antibiotics, it was a personal choice. So I still use them to this day. Um, I don't know if that influenced these results at all, but uh, either way, that the GI map's interesting because it's like, okay, well, sure, it's a snapshot in time, but it's also saying like, even if you're using supplements, what are those supplements leading to? So if it's leading to overall good results, then that's that's probably an okay thing and something I'm I'm willing to stand by because I, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. So the yep. next little section here says GI markers, but really what they're looking at is something called beta glucuronidase. It'll look at uh, look like B glucuronidase on video, and then occult blood. My occult blood super good, but the beta glucuronidase is starting to get a little high there, isn't it? Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite markers on the entire test um, because I see it clinically correlate so well. Um, so beta glucuronidase is actually naturally produced by your liver, your kidneys, kidneys, that's not actually a word, kidneys, um, and intestinal epithelium. But it can also be produced in um, excessive amounts by pathogenic bacteria in your gut. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens when your beta glucuronidase is high is that it can disrupt your body's ability to detoxify toxins and especially hormones. So think of uh, your liver as a full bucket of toxins and hormones and stuff that's trying to dump out. Um, and it tries to dump them out. And if, but if your beta glucuronidase is high, it's like someone taking half those toxins and hormones and dumping them right back in. So you're te- you tend to be recycling um, estrogen um, and recycling hormones. So when I see this number high, we can, it's a good bet that you have a higher toxic burden, um, which can look like you know fatigue, acne, um, hormone imbalance. You know, we talk about when we one of the this marker correlates so well that shows up on the Dutch hormone test. You know, if you got crazy high estrogen, um, I just ended up having um, a male client who did. Um, we had really high estrogen and then high beta glucuronidase. I'm like, well, here we go. Not that it is the one cause. There's always multiple variables when we when we have some, you know, for, for whatever marker. Um, but I, I really think this is a fascinating marker for explaining, like, why someone's toxic burden might be high, why they're not able to bring their estrogen mm-hmm. levels down. Um, and then it's definitely something we want to address um, and support, um, talk about healing opportunity. If you're recycling toxins, are you going to feel that great? Absolutely not. Are you going to um, gain the health that you want? Absolutely not. You know, again, with FDN, we want to reduce inflammation. We want to balance out the immune system and we want to reduce or eliminate toxic burden. I mean, everyone has some level of toxic burden in their body, whether it's metals or, or mold or, or endotoxins from gut bugs or environmental toxins, you know, um, we all have some level, but um, if you've got this uh, high beta glucuronidase marker, uh, then your body's just not getting it out the way it's supposed to. Sure. Well, what's really cool about this, Becca, is I remember this at the time. So, uh, uh, forgive me, what's, what is it? Calcium deglucurate? Is that something mm-hmm. that you could take temporarily yeah. for this? Mm-hmm. Am I saying that right? Um, so, I used that along with uh, Thorn Liver Cleanse. And what was nuts is I could so easily correlate only two days of use of this mm-hmm. to lessening of skin symptoms. Two days. Now you don't wow. want to just treat 
Well, I'm sorry. What I mean by that is once I got to using it, like if I stopped for like a day or I said mm-hmm. that kind of wrong. Once okay. I started using it and I probably got a couple weeks in, if I stopped using it for a day or two, sure enough, right on the chin, another little breakout. Mm-hmm. And then if I started again, it would seem to support that. So that that's really what I meant by the two days thing. Okay. But gotcha. um, not that we, we're not treating symptoms here because, you know, the supplements are great, but it's more or less just a Band-Aid for the real problem. I and mean, thankfully, that's, this did get addressed eventually. But it's just kind of amazing how you can see this test. No, no dermatologist has ever told me to look out for something like this or talk about mm-hmm. my detox pathways or anything yep. like it. And yet one of the cheapest supplements I ever bought was actually very supportive in helping me um, get some relief from that last mm-hmm. little bit of acne before I really identified the bigger stuff that was leading to it. So that's one of the beautiful things about being FDNs. We're yep. not going in and saying, oh, hey, just take the supplement for this high marker. No, no, no. We're saying, hey, just so you know, if you'd like, you can utilize this supplement for this high marker right now. It might mm-hmm. give you some relief. And we're also going to work on what's actually going on here so that yep. you don't need that supplement one day. That is uh, a beautiful thing about being an FDN. The the next side here, one of the last things, is the immune response. And we see secretory IgA and anti-gliadin IgA. And my secretory IgA is rather low. Um, it is 192 on a reference range of 510 to 2010. So what would your interpretation be of this, Becca, if I came yeah, to you back in 2018 and said, hey, here's my test yeah, results? It's so low. <laughs> I want to see this at about 1,000. If I could just pick a perfect level, I would say about a thousand. You don't want it too too low. You don't want it too high necessarily. Now, although if it's high, that means your body's doing something. It's having probably an appropriate immune response for someone, something. So, you know, we have the physical barrier of our gut lining. Um, and, but the secretory IGAs are, so it's a chemical barrier. Um, it's really the first line of defense um, in your gut against, um, um, the, the things that we don't want there, um, that could potentially create a lot of issues. And so this is showing that you, um, potentially maybe at one time had high levels, you know, of secretory IG. I always see that sometimes it gets really high. You have this big immune response and then your body can't, um, keep up that immune response over time. And so it starts tanking. Um, one of the, some of the biggest, uh, reasons this number might be low is stress. Um, high cortisol can decrease that secretory IgA, but I always, always often see it low um, with gut pathogens, with some of these um, opportunistic infections, as well as things um, like food sensitivities, like gluten, dairy, corn, some things that could be um, creating that immune response and that inflammatory response um, in the gut. Um, and so I would say that you definitely need some help here bringing up uh, your secretory IgA levels. And again, like Evan just said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with um, creating a plan that's got some allopathic care, that's got some, hey, let's get you feeling better quickly while we work on the root cause. So if mm-hmm. all you're doing is that allopathic care, let's get you, let's just get you feeling better without actually working on like, well, why is it low in the first place? Um, you know, right. what's going on to cause it to be low, then you're never actually going to get the improvement that you want. Um, so I would say here, you know, and um, upping the levels of your secretory IgA uh, while we work on that root cause. Now, your antigliadin is only 98. I would say, though, if it's above 50, then you're having some sort of reactivity. And then with your secretory IgA so low, I would really look at that antigliadin as a a false negative because you literally don't have the immune response capacity to have the appropriate immune response to that antigliadin marker, by the way, is uh, it's gluten. It's a gluten marker. Um, and so uh, I would say I would call that gluten marker a, a false negative there because you're, because it's above 50 and uh, because your secretory IgA is simply so low. Um, and I often see gluten as a, uh, in a causative role for that low secretory IgA. This is a, a a fairly simple example, but it's one of the just million cool things we learn as FDNs where we look at the labs deeper and with more complexity than Western medicine does. Um, you know, because Western medicine is actually not trained for the most part to analyze lab results, guys. So even if you could find a doctor that would run the GI map with you, which might be more likely than a lot of these other labs, but let's say they did, you know, they're not necessarily, it's not that they can't think of this. It's not that complicated, but they are not trained to think about the idea that, oh, okay, the anti-gliadin is a similar marker here in terms of like what is needed to create it. So if it's within range, but the secretory IgA is super low, 
Oh, that would probably be a lot higher. Can we mm-hmm. tell you how much higher? No, we can't. But we can make a reasonable assumption that that is the case. Um, and I have other tests to absolutely verify what you just said, that I am, in fact, gluten sensitive, and so is my mom. Yeah. So this absolutely is, again, really simple, but just one of the cool ways that we get trained as FDNs, different than any other practitioner out there, to start looking at these little things that someone else could have the exact same test results in front of them, and we're going to find things and correlate things that other people just were simply not trained to do. Um, last marker on here is inflammation. We have calprotectin. Uh, so what, what is that marker? And uh, I've seen that very high in some people. Sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's a marker for um, inflammation in the gut I mean, at the most basic level. Um, it's, it's actually very studied and very research marker. Um, and my, in my experience, though, just because this marker might not be high doesn't mean you don't have inflammation in your body. Um, but it's more of like a gut-specific uh, marker here. Um, now, if this marker was high and, say, your cold blood was high, so a cold blood is a um, marker for blood in the stool, um, I would refer someone out for, for a GI specialist. You know, let's look, let maybe get a colonoscopy. Let's look for polyps. Let's look for, for other things. Um, and I've seen, I often see the calprotectin and the occult blood high together. Um, I think I find that's more common for me than just the calprotectin t- uh, to be high. What do you, do you find the same thing? And then. Yeah. Um, well, and also, so I was distracted because one other thing I wanted to mention, we didn't go over this on the occult blood and we should have, like if women have this on, uh, not high, not high, but if it's like a one, two or three, um, we should have also said it's not something to freak out about because a lot of the times the woman was on her period. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be someone that suffers from like hemorrhoids or, and not to be gross here, but we're in the healthcare space, mm-hmm. guys, you got to be able to have mature conversations about yeah. this stuff. Um, some people, especially if their guts are messed up, they take really large poops and I, I would straight up ask them, hey, when you wipe sometimes, is there a, a little blood streak on mm-hmm. it? Because that could be the occult blood there. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yes to your question, but then also I was, I'm was i like thinking, dang, we should really mention that just so people don't yeah. freak out about occult blood <laughs> if they saw yeah. it. No, I mean, the markers, you know, in range is under 10. I've seen it. I've seen it in the hundreds, you know, where. Um, so, oh, you know, yeah, I it's, seen it's, I've seen I have a couple that was a really crazy high. Um, so yeah, you know, what I love about this test, this just overall test is it, it really, um, you can correlate it to so many of, of the things, the health challenges, you know, you've been experiencing. And, um, and I always tell my clients, we can do something about all of it. You're not stuck feeling the way you feel. And so many people feel like they're stuck, but you're not. And this has so many actionable steps that can be taken out of it. I love this test. Cool. Well, I appreciate you going over this with me. We like nailed the timing. That was kind of unintentional. I couldn't even see what it was. Um, so that's amazing. Now, with that all said, if you guys are interested in like actually learning how to analyze labs like this, this is just the tip of the iceberg for what we get to learn as FDNs. So if you're wanting to learn more about FDN, you can go to fdntraining.com slash try FDN and it'll allow you to try the course for free. But maybe you're like, all right, cool. I thought this was awesome, but I'm not necessarily trying to be the person who goes out and does this stuff. I want to learn from someone who does this. Becca, where can they find you? Because I know you utilize this lab all the time as well as many others in your practice. Yeah, I do. So um, if you just want to connect with me, my uh, my brand is Holistic Obsession. You can find me at holisticobsession.com. I have a private uh, but free Facebook group. Um, there'll be a link to that from my website. Um, if you just want to chit chat, I love having, I have offer free connection calls. I just love connecting with people and, and really being able to have a conversation about what's possible for your health. So again, on the website, there'll be a button to schedule that free connection call. And again, we can just have a, a conversation because most people don't really know what's possible how good they're meant to feel and and how good they um, have the potential to feel um, with the right data and the right action steps. Cool. All right, we will have all those links for you guys in the show notes and then the YouTube description as well, of course. But Becca, thank you so much for coming on with me and helping me continue this series where we get to really show off uh, what we get to do as FDMs. It's so much fun. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah.